wrongfully convicted of this. In part two of our Taco Land murder episode, we hear for the first time ever from the man who is on death row for the robbery and double murders at Taco Land. I mean, there's a lot of things that that um, don't lead to to me doing anything, nothing at all. This is South Texas Crime Stories, Taco Land Murders, Part Two. I want to I want to say thank you for doing this. I know. Mm -hmm. um, is this the first time you have ever done an interview? Yes, 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 yes. And how long have you been here now? I have been here since uh, 2007. What you're hearing is the interview I did last month in Livingston, Texas with Joseph Gamboa. Gamboa is on death row for the 2005 robbery and double murders of Ramiro Ramayala and Doug Morgan at Taco Land. So we talked about last week, how do we start this interview? How do you approach someone who's on death row? So Erica, break down what those first moments were like when he entered the interview space. I don't know for him, but for me it was awkward because they bring him in and it's like a little tiny little cubicle. He sits down, they uncuff him, and then they give him a piece of paper to sign, I guess, saying he's agreeing to this interview and kind of like a release form. And then we're, you know, getting our cameras ready. His photographer is doing his thing, and we're just kind of sitting there staring at each other, waiting for, you know, Misael, my photographer, to say, okay, we're good. And then you're just like, hi, how's it going? You know, like you, you try to break the ice in a way that's sensible almost because it's not an ideal situation. Right. And you don't want to start that conversation before you start recording because you don't know what he's going to say. Yeah. And that's why I kind of just was like, you know, thank you for doing this because they have to agree to do it. You know, we put in a request. They don't have to even come out the day of even if they agreed to. So I went ahead and just figured that would be a good way to just start saying thank you for doing this interview. Honestly, listening to your interview, hats off to you. You were so respectful to him. And even though he's been convicted of what he's convicted of, you still treated him like a person because he is a person. And you were so incredibly respectful, so direct with your questions. It was really nice to listen to this interview in, in its raw form. I didn't want to first piss him off and, you know, and make him not want to talk to me. So I wanted him to be comfortable to talk to me and hoping that he would say more. But first, we kind of just spoke about who he was. Talk a little bit about yourself. I mean, who is Joseph Gamboa? Well, um, I can say that um, I'm just another person that, you know, um, they come from well, that was born and raised in San Antonio, and um, basically, um, you know, just um, just going forward in life, you know, and uh, just taking one day at a time, right? Before everything happened, talk about growing up in San Antonio. How was that for you? Well, it was um, it was um, very challenging, you know, um, things growing up. Um, well. Like I say, it was challenging. For some kids, uh, you can say that, you know, um, they have it better than some. You know, I wasn't fortunate, but um, I was grateful for, you know, um, for the little things that I had to, you know, that's one thing that I had learned at an early age, to accept the things you can, you can have and accept the things that you can't have, you know, and just um, try to proceed, proceed in the, in the most positive way that, that you can and keep going forward, you know, and, 
basically that's you know that's that's how i been my mentality was you know um and that's basically it um so growing up he you mentioned he came from a very big family yeah that that's correct and a lot of this was revealed during testimony in the punishment phase of his trial what life was like for gamboa growing up he was one of 10 kids they weren't the best of parents to those kids. Um, CPS was called for neglect 24 times in 10 years, even to the point one night while his parents were out drinking, uh, a baby sister was asleep on a bed and slipped between the bed and the wall and suffocated. And it was just the kids there at the time by themselves when this happened. And so you can see he didn't have an ideal life growing up and he does mention you know we just made the most of what we had but he doesn't go into detail about those troubles the only reason we knew is because it came out in testimony but then the state argued that you know he had all these other siblings but they didn't go on in life to commit murder that's a very good point just because you grow up in bad circumstances a lot of people have and they they make the best out of the situation and make life what they want it to be they don't turn into double murderers yeah so it was a good argument by the state. I went on to ask Gamboa why he agreed to this interview and he kind of turned it on me. Why did, why did you agree to this interview? Why did you want to talk? I mean, your interest, that's what catches me, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's one of my questions I wanted to ask you is why Why would you want to interview me? Um, this is a, a story that's that, that San Antonio has always kind of remembered. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to retell it but also from your point of view because it matters both sides of the story matters and that's what we wanted to get exactly and you know and like y'all were the ones that were interviewing my whole trial from the beginning to uh, to the end and not only that even in the in my uh, when i went back to the 2013 hearing um y'all were out there so basically i mean y'all have the full understanding of, of how my trial went and how uh, i was wrongfully convicted of this you know so therefore, I mean, that y'all should right there have a better understanding from the, all that, you know what I mean? I mean, not only that, I mean, it's like, you know, I don't know how, 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 I mean, I ended up here. Let's just talk about that, that day in June 2005. From your perspective, what happened? I mean, like I say, you know, I said, you know, you know what a discovery is, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, if you were to go and obtain that discovery, you would see a whole lot different. This is what gives, you know, the grand jury uh, the right to indict you, you know. So therefore, you know, in there, there's there's a lot where Miss Anita Exxon has stated about, you know, my whereabouts and how I ended up there and how I left, you know. So therefore, I had no, no, I had nothing to do with this crime, you know what I'm saying? So therefore, that's why there's just like I said, if you were to go back and you were to to replay the whole audio video from from the trial from the beginning to the end, you know, I mean that's what I'm saying that if you obtain this discovery, then you'll see more and you would understand that you know how is this? How is this that you know that I was even you know indicted on this? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I mean that's where I stand. So throughout this, we kept talking about he denies, 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 and he does not waver from that denial. No, not at all. Like he was pretty, it's almost like he rehearsed his own story in his own head and how everything went down, even though it wasn't exactly the correct story. 
And I thought it was really interesting how he would almost kind of be like, no, you do your research. You, you go look at the discovery, go look back at the trial, how I was, you know, wrongly convicted. So it was, I was already starting to get a little frustrated at this point. And I moved on to talking about his appeals and where he's at with that. And then try to shift back. Like I was shifting back and forth because he was sticking to his story. So I would kind of change the subject, but then go back to talk about the night of the murders. Now you say you were wrongly convicted, but you don't deny not being at the bar that night. Yes, I never denied being there. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that the witnesses put you at the scene and, and the surviving victim named you as the suspect? Well, again, like I say, if you were to go back and look at the discovery, there's a lot of detail in there that would make you understand more clearly about 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 my case. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So therefore, to begin with, they can never identify me. They all use the tainted. They use they use the photo ray line, photo ray lineup that they got suggested. Suggested means is they tainted it. They showed it more than once when they're you know when they come to you and they show you a photo ray lineup. They're supposed to show it to you one time. If that person uh, identifies the person, then it's an accurate, positive identification. So if they don't identify you the first time, then it's not an accurate, and they're not supposed to show that same photo right lineup to you over and over again. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Yes. So therefore, they they never could identify me. You know what I'm saying? They never said that I was a, you know the person that did crime you know what I mean yes. so therefore that so there's that's why I'm saying that if you were to go back and you were to look at the, the audio video you know from from my my trial from the beginning to the end and you will see how where I'm explaining to you all this injustice you know mm -hmm. talk about what you did that night you went to the bar you had a couple of drinks and you just left yeah that's exactly what I told my lawyers right that I was there I never denied being there I was there and I and I how to say played a game of pool bought a beer and left and that was it so, you know I ended up going to trial for this yeah I, I thought again hats off to you with this whole interview because the way you were able to phrase one question in like 16 different ways to try and just get him to be open and honest with you and just to kind of let down that wall but he stuck to his story and he was not going to go down any other avenue and a lot of his answers sounded exactly the same yeah and it, going back and hearing it at the time I didn't catch just how exact or the words he was using therefore discovery and it was like almost he didn't know where to put these phrases at and like he did it he knew there's these were words but he didn't know how to use them you know, in a, in a conversation, the appropriate way. So it's like, he's almost had memorized maybe passages of a book that he had read, or he had heard his lawyers or other lawyers say things. And he was just trying to put that into the conversation. I'm trying my best to find different ways to ask it. Like you said, I asked it multiple different ways going back and forth with him. Yeah, it was it was interesting. And he's also denying Nahera's role in the crime as well, saying, I don't know why he would say he did this. Yeah, we, we started talking about his accomplice, Hussein Nahira. 
about the alleged accomplice in this, Jose Najera? Was he a friend of yours? Yes, he was a friend of mine. Did he do this crime? Well, again, like I say, I cannot explain that, you know what I'm saying? From, from like I said, if you were to go and look at the discovery, right, mm -hmm. you would see a lot of detail in there that explains how, you know, things, what was said and what was not said, you know what I'm saying? So, mm -hmm. again, like I said, I cannot, ex I cannot speak for his actions, you know what I'm saying? I cannot speak on whether he did it or not. You know, I know that when he was with me, there was nothing like that, you know what I'm saying? Because there was no need. Me to me, the way I see things, I'm a positive person, you know, and I, I'm not the type of person to be, I mean, interacting and stuff like that, you know what I mean? Yeah. Did, but Mr. Najera took a plea deal and pled guilty, yes. too. When you left the bar, did he leave with you or did he stay? No, he left with me. Okay, he left with you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Why do you think he took a plea deal and pled guilty? Well, I don't know. I don't, you know, again, um, you know, I, I cannot speak for him, you know what I'm saying? I mean, that's something that you would have to ask him, you know what I mean? I, I mean, I can only speak for myself, you know, that's why I, I didn't take no plea deal or I didn't, you know, take anything. That's why I'm fighting for my life right now because I'm I'm innocent. So, you know, he's denying Nakata's role in this crime as well. And it made me think, because I didn't find out till after this interview that Nakata had passed away in prison in 2015. I don't think he knew that either. So I think to a fault, he was still sticking. They, he thought he still needed to stick by him. Right. That was his friend. That was, I mean, the phrase goes, you ride or die. And he, he was like, I'm going to stick with him. So then I just was like, at this point, I'm like, let's just wrap this up because I'm not getting anywhere. But I did want to see if he had anything to say, you know, any remorse for his actions, anything to say to the the victims or the victims' families, all the people that he was, he impacted. And it just kind of went nowhere again. What would you like San Antonio family, friends of the victim survivors to know because they have a whole nother picture, a whole nother idea of what happened and and a whole different, how do I say it, vision of who you are. Mm -hmm. What would you want to say to them? Well, again, as I said, the people that know me that were there in my trial and the people that were there that know, you know, um, from Mayala's family and everything, Again, they were there, they seen the whole trial, so they know how things went, you know what I'm saying? So therefore, like I said, if you have sense to understand what really what happened in the trial, I mean, then, then that's, that's where you would get the idea to see, you know, what really happened. Do you know who committed this crime? No, ma'am. Yeah, the fact that he said, no, ma'am, doesn't, doesn't have anything. Like, y you would think... Even if he wants to maintain that I didn't do this, hey, I'm sorry for, for the families that lost people. I didn't do it, but that, that stinks for them. But not even to have that. It was interesting. It went right back to him. I'm the, almost like he was saying he was the victim in all this. And he does it. You'll see it. And it's hard to, to explain this because you can't visually see it unless you saw the on-air story. He is smiling. Go watch that story because his face, creepy. My creepometer... <laughs> Oh, buddy, it is peeking at the top and staying there. He just has this really like scary smile. And from beginning to end, like he's just smiling. It doesn't break the smile. It is weird. 
It's chilling to watch him. Yeah, so there's obviously no remorse or understanding behind it. Yeah, so just kind of how we ended the the uh, conversation. We did talk a little bit longer. He explained how he was he has since learned how to read and write and has been educating himself while in jail and how he wished that he made education a priority in his life when he was younger. And this was kind of the rare part of the interview where I kind of saw just who he was. Like he was really like, I wish when I was younger that I learned more, that I, I put education first in my life. And I think he's thinking back to like, if I would have done that, I probably wouldn't have been in this situation or put myself in this situation. He also spoke a little more about his faith and how he relies on it while he's going through the appeals process. And then I asked him what happens if he gets an execution date. After so many denials of, of your appeals already, does it worry you? Well, you know, I have grown to not really fo um, put my, all my focus on just stressing about my pills or anything like that. Again, I just take one day at a time and I try to keep myself busy, you know, um, and just um, keeping in contact with my family and just basically just going forward, you know. And like I said, um, I'm just going to leave this in, in the hands of God, you know, and just uh, let him um, guide the way like he has, you know. Yeah, it, it seems odd that he was just like i'm just gonna trust in the lord let him let him guide the way he just seems to be so whatever happens happens but i'm innocent um you asked him one more time and even said to him people who are watching this might think that you're a liar what do you hope the viewers or anybody who's seeing gets out of this story and hearing you because well, some people may be like, oh, he's just lying. They all say they're, you know. Okay, well, again, like I said, you know, um, the papers don't lie. Your audio video doesn't lie, you know. I mean, they try to they try to convict me. And not only that, you know, we filed seven motions for mistrials, you know, on good grounds and good errors, you know, um, from the detectives, how they, how they did their investigation and how they did so much wrong, you know. So therefore, again, you know, to me, I'm going to let you all see that right there, you know, do your research. So then we spoke to Dr. John Delatore about this interview, and Delatore is a licensed psychologist in Arizona and right here in San Antonio. He has provided analysis for television shows and court shows on numerous cases, and he had a lot to say about this interview and kind of opened our eyes and reaffirmed your creepy feeling from this guy. Yeah, and the first thing I kind of, we, we asked him, like, what is just your general overview of the interview and his opinion? And we were just like, oh gosh, that makes so much sense. Uh, not gonna lie, just just seeing him, you, I, I, felt, I, uh, I felt unsettled. Uh, watching the video about him. And there were a couple of reasons for that. Number one is this kind of resting, smiling face that he has. Um, it's, it's a bit curious. Uh, it doesn't really mean anything just kind of on its own. What I think it actually means is that he's probably grown up in his life having to put a smile on his face to, to kind of mask sort of uh, some pretty negative things that were going on either in his family or going on within him that he couldn't quite uh, describe. 
but there's just an unsettled feeling that you have when you're asking this guy questions about a murder and his resting face is that of a smile. And I imagine that that is probably the same face that he had when he was, you know, in trial and the jurors saw those kinds of things. And he may not have meant anything by it. I, I don't think it's, it's not evidence of him being a psychopath or antisocial or anything like that. It's just, it's just his face, but I can see it turning a lot of people off. Um, the other thing that left me unsettled was his inability or unwillingness, whatever, I'm not quite sure what it is uh, to answer any of your questions, Erica, like he just wouldn't answer them. And he kept, he kept telling you and telling you, and when you would even ask about, you know, what should the, what should our audience you know want to hear? He would tell you to look at the discovery, which I find very curious because yeah, who causes that? I mean, we know what discovery is. It's a process of, of gathering evidence and presenting evidence and things like that. But it's not what you actually say. Like lawyers don't describe it as discovery. We don't describe it as discovery as psychologists. And I doubt that you as journalists describe it as discovery. You call it what it is. It is evidence. There is this... When I listen to him talk, and he says it later on in your interview with him, it's clear that he is not educated. It's clear that he has not graduated from high school if he went any far, anywhere near high school. Um, it's clear that he has some kind of either intellectual deficit or some kind of learning disability that has prevented him from acquiring new knowledge but more importantly, applying that knowledge in novel ways. Yeah, he he really spoke to what his interpretation of Gamboa was and why he was acting the way he was. And it was very eye-opening to maybe why he answered things a certain way. His demeanor, the creepy smile. Yeah, he even called it a resting, like, happy face, like, and it made sense, the reasoning behind why he probably was smiling. And it wasn't so much that I'm a, a psychopath. It was because he had to put on a face his entire life. And so now that's just what his face does. That's just his mask he wears permanently. It's in a mask that he's not taking off and probably won't ever take off. That's just going to be him. And I never thought of that. You know, immediately we think, and I'm sure most of the viewers think, and he made the point, the jury probably thought about this in his case. It doesn't come off appropriate, mm -hmm. but there is no psychotic reasoning for it. Right. Exactly. I thought that was kind of eye-opening. He also talked about the fact like he was sticking to that story and he spoke to him kind of regurgitating what he the three syllable word the one three syllable word he knew yeah he just was like this is re almost rehearsed i think is how he described it and saying that he is doing this for a reason is because he's a follower not a leader what i think is missing is that there's no motive right they talk about that this is a robbery but this is probably the worst robbery of all time uh, I, I, I don't know why you robbed this place of all the places that you could go. I don't know why you robbed this place. I don't know why you show up, uh, where people can see your face. Um, I, I, I don't know why you do any of these things that you do. 
And Gamboa doesn't seem like he's not a planner, right? He's not the, he's not the guy that's going to construct something like this, the intricacies of, well, it's a popular bar. So there's going to be like, he's not that kind of guy. He's, he's the guy that, that shows up without a plan and just starts blasting everybody. Um, but I think more than that, I think he's a follower. I think he does what you tell him to do. And I think if it's me that's planning to commit a crime, uh, he's the perfect guy for this because he's an easy fall guy, right? That he's the guy that if I get caught doing something, I can go to the police and I can you know make a deal and I'm sophisticated enough to know that the bet that I can make the best deal, and I'm going to point the finger at at Gamboa because there's nothing that he's going to be able. He can't outsmart me or the police. And that kind of leads into his friendship then with Nahera. And why probably Nahera took a plea deal because he was probably the leader in this situation, and in Gamboa's mind, he's like, I am innocent because I didn't plan this but i'm not going to turn on probably the only friend i have yeah the only person he could rely on for for however long that the two knew each other so that was that was interesting and you know we we could speculate the entire time you know what if he had known that nahera was dead do you think that would change his answers and we're not going to know that because you're not going to go back there you're not going to that's not a trip that's worth it he's not going to open up for that one question, it's just, it's not going to change anything, but it is interesting to speculate. Would that have made an impact? Yeah. I, I wonder if at that point, realizing that he didn't have to stay so faithful to his friends anymore, if that would have changed his answers and he would have opened up a little more. And like you said, we'll never know. I was very appreciative of Dr. Uh, Delatore's kind of analysis of this because it it made me really realize who Gamboa was. Exactly. And it just kind of reaffirmed and solidified a lot of the feelings that you had. Your intuition with this interview was spot on the entire time. Yeah. I mean, I was just like, okay, he's playing games. He doesn't understand what we're trying to do here. He's not going to be remorseful. He, He ultimately just doesn't understand what is going on around him. Exactly. It was it was eye-opening to see that and then also to get that analysis analysis afterwards. I'm glad we we were able to have Dr. John on to do that because it I think we need to do more of that because I think people really do need to see who these these defendants and who these criminals are and why they may do the things they do. Right. Dr. Delatore, we know you listen, so you're going to be on a couple more episodes with us. Thank you so much for making yourself available. We look forward to talking with you again about a lot of the cases that we have coming up. And we do have several more cases for this season that we're really excited about bringing you. Yeah, so thanks for joining us and stay tuned for our next South Texas Crime Stories next week. We take a look at the case of a serial killer that nobody expected. 